Grace and peace to you this morning. As Frank suggested, our order of service is a little bit different, and I would ask you to join me as we begin to focus our minds on the Lord's Supper. And I want to begin with a quote here. It says, In the kingdom of heaven, faith is then the principle, and ordinances the means of enjoyment. Because all the wisdom, power, love, mercy, compassion of grace of God is in the ordinances of the kingdom of heaven. And if all grace be in them, it can only be enjoyed through them. What then, under the present administration of the kingdom of heaven, are the ordinances which contain the grace of God? They are preaching the gospel Immersion in the name of Jesus into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The reading and teaching of the living oracles, the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, fasting, prayer, confession of sins, and praise. This is a quote from Alexander Campbell, one of the early leaders of the Restoration Movement in America. What Campbell calls ordinances here, others call sacraments. The word sacrament comes from the Latin translation of mystery in Ephesians 5. Now, we should not concern ourselves with arguing over words, whether we should call it ordinances or sacraments or something else. Instead, what is being described here are physical things that we participate in as a church, which also have a spiritual element to them. In other words, there is more to what is going on than meets the eye. There is more to baptism than just getting wet. Our our coming together on, on the first day of the week, what we're doing right now, is unlike what they do later in the week at the Lions Club. There is something more that's happening in this moment. There is more to reading Scripture than simply gaining information. And there is more to the Lord's Supper than eating bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. Something spiritual is taking place when we participate in these activities. We experience the grace of God, as Campbell states. Perhaps the the best word for these activities might be holy mysteries. They are not mysteries in the sense that we do not know what is happening. We do know. We know that God is at work. He is present in baptism. He is present when the church comes together. They are mysteries in the sense that there is more going on than we can see with our eyes. Jesus makes this very point about the Lord's Supper in our text for today in John 6, verses 52 through 59. It says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. We have not given this text as much attention as it deserves. We have not read it or studied it as often as we have other passages on the Lord's Supper from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I've been in many churches in my life, but I've never seen a communion table that quotes from this passage. Again, we choose Luke or Matthew. Do this in remembrance of me as found on most communion tables. These are Jesus' words, and we need to abide by them, but we must also recognize that these are not his only words. We are to remember Jesus when we take communion. But that's not all. We come to the table because we find grace at the table. We come because it is Jesus' table, And he is present with us. There's more to communion than just remembering. Jesus tells us things about the Lord's Supper in this passage that that, that we can't learn anywhere else. For instance, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this passage is not without controversy. Right after saying these things, John will tell us that many of his disciples left. They walked away. Pagans in the the first few centuries accused early Christians of cannibalism. Later, in the year 1215, Catholics began to teach that the bread and the wine becomes the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. And it's probably because of these controversies that that we shy away from this passage. But that's not a good reason. If we shied away from every teaching of Jesus that was deemed controversial in some way, we would be left with very little. Because his teachings were controversial to many when he spoke them, and they still are today. And so we need to embrace the words of Jesus, no matter what others might say or think of them. If we are to understand these words from Jesus, then we need to understand something about the gospel of John itself. When we began this journey several months ago, looking at this gospel, we reflected on how it begins with a poem. And and often throughout this gospel, John will make use of symbolic language. We have seen how Jesus refers to himself as a gate 
a light and a vine. Is Jesus literally saying he is a gate? Is he suggesting in some way that he is a literal vine growing up from the ground? Of course not. Even in this context, even in chapter 6 here, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. But we all understand that Jesus was not saying that he was a literal loaf. And why should we read this section of the chapter any differently? Jesus, again, is speaking in symbols just as he spoke to the woman at the well. Just because Jesus speaks symbolically here and in many other places, though, doesn't make his words any less important. He is speaking of eternal life. These are serious matters. And what he does in this passage is he connects eternal life with the Lord's Supper. And again, this is a connection that we often don't make. We connect eternal life to baptism, but not to communion. But but Jesus is making an important point here. There's more to Christianity than just being baptized. A person also has to be a participant in the life of the church. And so baptism connects us to Jesus, but we have to stay connected. And how do we do this? One way is through weekly participation of the Lord's Supper with the saints. Why? What is so special about this meal? Well, Jesus answers that question for us. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Part of the grace that that we receive from participating in the Lord's Supper is that we abide in Jesus and he abides in us. We come to the table and, and Jesus is present with us. We come and partake of the spiritual nourishment that Jesus has to offer. His love is poured into us through this act. You know, it's interesting that Jesus connects this meal with the manna in the wilderness. And he focuses on how these two meals are different. The people of God uh, in the wilderness, they ate the manna, but they died. He says, if we partake of the Lord's Supper, we will live. And Jesus here is pointing out how the meal in the wilderness, it offered physical nourishment. That was the purpose of that meal. But the Lord's Supper offers something different. It offers us spiritual nourishment. There are some similarities, though, between the two meals, uh, even though they're different meals. The people of God in the wilderness would have never survived without that manna from heaven. They could not have made it. They had to rely on God each and every day. They understood this very much. It caused caused them some anxiety. However, do we understand that we cannot survive without the Lord's Supper? If, If we reject the Lord's Supper... We are rejecting the spiritual nourishment that Jesus offers us. 
If we reject the Lord's Supper, we begin to die spiritually. And so we need this meal. We need Jesus to abide in us, and we need to abide in him. Those of us here this morning, we understand the the value of this meal. We understand its significance. But we also need to be careful that we don't misunderstand what the Lord's Supper is all about. It is spiritual, but it's not magical. The meal offers us spiritual nourishment, but it does not guarantee our salvation. It's possible to partake of this meal and still be lost. This is seen when Jesus first institutes the meal. You'll remember one of the people at his table was Judas. And his sharing in that meal did not stop his betrayal. He ate the meal just like everyone else, but but he was not spiritually nourished like all the other disciples. His heart was not right, and he later took his own life. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, again, these words from Paul have sometimes been misunderstood. And it's important that we understand exactly what Paul is talking about here. He is not suggesting that if we have sin in our lives, then we cannot partake of the Lord's Supper. That's not what he's saying at all. If that were the case, then none of us could partake of it this morning. If that were the case, Jesus would have never allowed Judas or or likely some of the other disciples to dine with him on that night when he first instituted this supper. And so if Paul is not talking about sin in general, then what is he referring to? Well, he tells us exactly in verses 17 through 22. So if you go back and read the whole chapter, you get a sense of what's going on. And what was going on is that the Corinthians were divided. And it seems as if they were divided in regards to class and income. You see, in the first century, the Lord's Supper was a meal. In fact, this is the earliest picture that we have of the Lord's Supper. It comes from the early second century, so the early 100s, shortly after the New Testament was completed. And some in Corinth... Paul says we're going hungry while others were being gluttons. They were not waiting on one another. They were a divided church. And so Paul says this to them, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They were making a mockery of this very important meal. Now, we no longer sit across from one another at a table when we take the Lord's Supper, although that would not be a bad idea. We sit in pews with our bread and our wine. 
However, we need to be united. We do not need to partake of the Lord's Supper if we would refuse to eat with someone here today. We do not need to participate if we would decline an invitation to lunch from anyone here this morning. We call the Lord's Supper communion for a reason. We are to be communing with God. I think we understand that. But we're also be, to be communing with one another. But, but, but here's the thing about that. We cannot commune with God if we're going to refuse to commune with one another. And John will make this point in his first epistle. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so when we come to the table, if we have done wrong, if we have failed in some way this week, that's okay. In fact, we need to come to the table if we have sinned because it's at the table that we receive grace. Sinners are welcome at the Lord's table just as they were welcome at Jesus' table during his ministry on earth. What is not welcome is division of any type. We cannot share in this meal if we have hatred for our brothers or sisters for any reason at all. If we do, then we will not receive grace, but instead we will bring judgment upon ourselves, as Paul says. And so the Lord's table is a place where we put aside all our differences and we welcome one another in the name of Christ. It is a place where Jesus welcomes every person. In fact, he welcomes the very person that will betray him. And if that's not grace, then I don't know what is. What we do at the table every first day of the week is special. We meet Jesus at this table. We abide in him and he abides in us. We receive grace from him. We set our minds on Jesus and we prepare for the week ahead of us. We commune with God and we commune with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord's Supper is an important meal, an important moment that begins our week. However, it does not end there. We need to understand that what happens at the table is supposed to be a catalyst for how we live and act in the world. We are to carry with us the lessons that we learn at the table. We are to take the grace of Jesus with us into the world. We are to remember Jesus as we live out our lives in this community. We receive forgiveness at the Lord's table, but we also receive encouragement to live differently, to live like Jesus. You know, it's fascinating that every Sunday we gather around a table. We do not gather around an altar. There was a table 
before there was ever a pulpit. We meet Jesus at the table. When we think about taking what we learn here out into the world, we should not miss the significance of the table. You know, fewer and fewer people eat around tables nowadays. That's a statistical fact. We are also more divided than we've ever been. And I don't believe that those two facts are coincidental. I believe they go hand in hand. This morning, we will dine with Jesus at his table. We are blessed to be able to do this. But I'll ask you this question. What can we do when we leave? How can we take this with us? We can use our tables. Let me suggest two things that we can do. First, remember what the Lord's Supper was in the early church. It was a meal. Now, we no longer observe it in this way, but the importance of table fellowship is just as important now as it was back then. The church was strong in the early early Christianity because they regularly ate together. And if we want to strengthen our congregation, if we want to have more meaningful relationships with fellow Christians, then what we'll do is we will eat together. And so do not allow the the, the fellowship that we enjoy during the Lord's Supper to end with the closing prayer. What I would encourage you to do is invite someone to lunch. Do it today. Invite someone to share a table with you. And don't wait for someone to invite you. Go and invite them. Don't rush out the, the door before anyone can speak to you. Unite around a meal, just as Jesus taught us to do and showed us how to do many, many times. Second, I would suggest that we find ways to use our tables for good. Dine with sinners as Jesus did. Share the good news with them. Use your table to help heal the divide in our world. Invite people to your table who do not share your beliefs or worldview. Listen to them. Seek to understand where they're coming from. And be a peacemaker, as Jesus told us to do. And then you might share with them about the table that you come to every first day of the week. A table where people from different backgrounds, different races, different political parties all come together and dine. Tell them about Jesus who unites us despite all of our differences. And I believe if we use our tables as Jesus wants us to, as Jesus calls us to, we will see a difference in this church and in this community. And maybe, just maybe, that difference will spread to other towns and other communities. And we can make this world a better place.
one meal at a time. And it's all because of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago who shared a meal with his closest friends and called us to do the same. Let us now prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to enjoy this meal together.